Let us turn once again to Luke's gospel as we continue our series in this gospel, Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 57. We will come to the conclusion of the ninth chapter, Lord willing, this morning. And then we will be taking a break in Luke until the first of the year. This coming Sunday is what is sometimes known as Advent Sunday, and certainly we are not bound to any church calendar, but it's my habit usually to focus on the beginning of Advent. You see, what happens is in December, we begin to think of the birth of Christ. We work full circle to the return of Christ. So the first Sunday in Advent actually focuses on the return of Christ, but by the end of the service, we are turning our attention to the birth of Christ. And for the entire month of December, we will be dwelling upon themes that relate to the birth of Christ. So in this coming Sunday, we will pause Luke until after the first of the year. Will you pray with me? Our Father and our God, humbled within your presence, your special presence in worship, knowing that we have the privilege of opening your word that is given to us by divine inspiration, and now coming to a very simple but serious text that helps us to see something about what it really means to be your disciples. We pray that you will help those who are true disciples. Indeed, by your grace, most of us here, we believe that we would not be overcome and overwhelmed by the seriousness, but that we would draw upon the work of the Holy Spirit to help us to continue in our discipleship and to do so well. But also, Father, that someone here who perhaps is a disciple but needs to believe and repent because he has allowed something to get in the way of that discipleship, or perhaps someone here today who is lost and undone and is not a disciple at all, that you would use the exposition of your word through the powerful operations of your spirit to draw that person out of darkness into light. Will you hear us, Father, as we now turn to your word with great anticipation that we will see Jesus here and understand his call in our lives? Thank you for giving to us the Bible, God's word, without error. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Will you now take your copy of God's Word and stand as we read Luke chapter 9, beginning with verse 57. This is the Word of God. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. How appropriate that this section on discipleship follows upon the last. In view of the Samaritan's rejection of Jesus 
And in view of the theme of zeal in the section that we saw last week, this section now stresses that to be a disciple requires total commitment. Are we really Jesus' disciples or are we would-be disciples? The text gives to us three examples of would-be disciples, and each teaches us something about what it really does mean to be a disciple of Jesus. The first thing that it teaches us about discipleship, the very first thing is this, this world is not our home. Look again at verses 57 and 58. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So a man commits to follow Christ. Well, do you know what that involves? In Matthew 8, this man speaks to Jesus and calls him teacher. Undoubtedly, he's thinking of those who would study under a rabbi and learn the Torah. But Jesus essentially says to this man, my call to you is something more than learning the law under a teacher. And the point of the Savior, if you go where I go, you will know rejection, suffering, and dejection. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Son of Man, of course, as we have seen, is a title of deity. God become flesh had nowhere to lay his blessed head. From the moment of Jesus' entry into this world as he assumed human nature, he was not at home here. This was not his home. He was holy, he was undefiled, separate from sinners, representing the heart of the Father in a world that rejected God and was antagonistic to him. Now, if you and I are Jesus' disciples, we will share in his understanding of the world. That the world is lost, undone, sinful, in need of salvation, hurling to judgment, and that therefore our home must be elsewhere. Every true disciple will be at one time or another in the position to choose between his Christian convictions and what the world has to offer. What is the Lord doing in a disciple when he takes his disciples through the hardships of life, just as Jesus himself endured as a true man in this fallen world? What is the Lord doing? When we bear his reproach, when we go through trouble, when we endure abuse, he is redrawing in our hearts and in our lives the character of our Savior. Union with Christ is a transforming union. Listen to what Louis Burkhoff had to say. By this union, believers are changed into the image of Christ according to his human nature. What Christ effects in his people is, in a sense, a replica or reproduction of what took place with him. Not only objectively, but also in a subjective sense. They suffer, bear the cross, are crucified, die, and are raised in newness of life with Christ. They share, in a measure, the experiences of their Lord. The purpose of trial... The purpose of our understanding that this world is not our home, the purpose of going through those things that redraw the character of Christ within our lives, it is to make you Christ-like and to wean your affections from the world. 
Every disciple of Jesus must learn that this world is not our home. Paul called this world, this present evil age. Living for Jesus is to do battle with this world system. Now, I'm not saying that the earth, that the creation, that those, those wonderful gifts of God to us that surround us, that these things are bad, not at all. They come from God's good fatherly hand. When we use the term world here, we mean the world system that is opposed to Christ. All that is opposed to his son, his salvation, what he intends for us as a heavenly father. So living for Jesus is to do battle with this world system. So we have just sung, is this vile world a friend to grace to help us on to God? Sometimes we seem to think so. Sometimes we live in a compromising way with this world system, but the answer to that is a resounding no. This vile world system is not a friend to grace to help us on to God. And as soldiers of the cross and followers of the Lamb and true disciples of Jesus, we are opposed to that world system, that same world system that sent our Savior to the cross. I read a well-known saint recently who on his deathbed, his last words were, I now exchange my cross for a crown. That's it. He understood the Christian life. And so did Paul the Apostle when by divine inspiration he writes in 2 Timothy 4, I have fought the good fight of faith. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. And so the Christian life, true discipleship, is a battle with this world system. Jesus, of course, had nowhere to lay his head. He was not at home in this world. And we as believers, though we may have very nice places in which to put our heads down upon our pillows at night, nonetheless must realize that this world system is a system that is opposed to God. And the disciple shares in the degradation of his Lord developing an eternal perspective that far outweighs all of the trouble that we have in this world as it ripens us for heaven and gives to us a longing to be with our Savior who went before us in his ascension. That's the first thing we learn as disciples from this text. This world is not our home. But there's a second thing we learn. The kingdom is our top priority. The kingdom is our top priority priority. We see this in verses 59 and 60. Would you look again? To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And so there's a second man that is called to follow, and he wants first to bury his father. Now, doesn't this sound reasonable? Well, perhaps our Lord knew something about this man's heart that we don't know. Perhaps he knew that if he went back, he would never come. He would never follow. Well, in any case, proper burial was very important in the ancient world. And what is Jesus saying to this man? Jesus is saying that the call to follow him is even greater than this high rabbinic responsibility to family greater than all else in this world is following 
Jesus. And so, verse 60, leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Now, the answer of Jesus shows the call to discipleship is a, tall, is a call of total commitment. As I was thinking about this text, one passage that actually came to my mind was in Ezekiel chapter 24. You'll remember that in Ezekiel 24, as the Lord wants to make a preaching point to his people, he requires this of his servant Ezekiel. Listen, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, I'm about to take the delight of your eyes away from you as a stroke. At a stroke, yet you shall not mourn or weep, nor shall your tears run down. Sigh, but not aloud. Make no mourning for the dead. Bind on your turban and put on your shoes on your feet. Do not cover your lips, nor eat the bread of men. So I spoke to the people in the morning and at evening. My wife died. And on the next morning, I did as I was commanded. That helps us to see something, the astounding call of Jesus. As important as burying your dead as important as human relationships are, as important as family relationships are, as important as bearing your dead, there's something more important following me. So that in essence, Jesus is saying to him, if I call you to come now, come now. If I call you to follow now, follow now. If I say, do this, do this. And he is stressing here his lordship. So that the attitude of the disciple must increasingly be, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Speak, Lord, for your servant listens, must be the attitude of the disciple. Do you not see this strange note of authority here? Who is this is the question that goes all the way back when we saw Jesus stilling the winds and the waves. But it's rightly a question here. Who is this that speaks with such strange authority? Who is this that says your desires, your plans, your autonomy, your sense of what is expected of you, all of this must be submitted to me and I will accept no excuses. That's lordship that is being expressed here. Christ is not only my savior, Christ also is my Lord. And you may not dichotomize the two. You cannot say, well, I will have Christ as my priest who died for me, but I will not have him as my king who rules over my life. If he is your priest, he also is your king. And so verse 60 is very profound. Hyperbole, undoubtedly, just as Jesus uses in the Sermon on the Mount. When he says that if your right hand offend you, cut it off. He's not literally saying cut it off, but he's using hyperbole. He's making a point. Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. What could possibly be more important than burying one's closest relative? Proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, says Jesus. That's more important. Jesus says in Luke 4, I must preach the good news of the kingdom, for I was sent for this purpose. And now he is calling this man to preach the gospel, anticipating, of course, the call to the church in our own day of the Great Commission with all of its urgency. It's even more urgent now than it was when this man heard this call from Jesus. 
For Christ has died, he rose again, he ascended to heaven, and today is the day of salvation that must be proclaimed by his ministers. Preaching then must be urgent. It is authoritative because the ascended Christ has poured out his spirit and called men to preach Christ, the alone savior of sinners, from this authoritative book. My teacher Edmund Clowney once said, preaching that has lost urgency and passion reveals a loss of the eschatological perspective of the New Testament. And he was absolutely right. You may not be called to preach, but you are called to participate in the spread of the good news of the kingdom. And you are, as his disciple, called to live with kingdom priorities in your earthly calling, in your homes, in your recreations. And so the question is, am I? The question is, are you? Let me give you two examples of how this might look. Imagine a session member, an elder, and his daughter is not walking faithfully and rebels against the Lord, and every effort to bring her back has been in vain. She walks away from Christ. She walks away from the church. It is that elder's responsibility to participate in the excommunication eventually of his own daughter. Now, this is not something I'm making up. I can point to examples of this. One man especially is in my mind as I say this, with all of the grief, all of the hardship involved, for the purpose of showing the love of Christ, for the purpose of attempting one one final means that God has given to us of recovering someone who has walked away. I can think of a minister who actually had to participate in the excommunication of his own daughter. Was he right to do so? Absolutely. He is a disciple of Jesus Christ before he is a father to his daughter. Christ comes first. Even the dearest relationships are underneath the lordship of Christ. By the way, to end the story, this girl grew up, her father died, and she came to faith in Christ at his funeral. Let me give you another example. Some of you children and young people know the name Marie Durant because some of you have read one of the books out of the little bookstore. And I really commend it to you. Marie was 18, 19 years old. She lived in France. Her dates were 1711 to 1776. It was still illegal in France to be a Calvinist, to be reformed as we are, to be a Presbyterian, if you will, essentially. Her brother, Pierre, was a preacher. Now, this was in a day where it was illegal to gather for worship. So they would gather in the fields and in caves to worship. And they wanted him. The government wanted him. And so they arrested her for the sole reason that she was the sister of a reformed minister. Later, he was caught and shot. She was put in the Tower of Constance. Horrible place. Small little room. Only one window. Freezing cold in winter terribly, swelteringly hot in summer. And there she was placed, 19 years old, she was placed in a room with about 40 other Huguenot, French, Calvinist, Reformed women. 
And all she had to do to be set free was to say, abjure, recant. She wouldn't do it. Rather than that, there is written in stone, chiseled in stone. You can go there and see it today. Chiseled in stone, probably by Miss Durant. The word resiste, resist. And even though she was 18, 19 years old when she came there, she was the most mature of all the Christians who helped the others to resist capitulating and, and to stand for the Reformed faith. And she did that. She did that for 38 years until finally she was set free. An old woman. She had gone there a newlywed, just married, young, beautiful Huguenot girl. She left an old, gray-haired, stooped-over woman. She lived only eight years after she was set free. Was it worth it? I ask you, was it worth it? Yes, because it was done as a disciple of Jesus Christ. It was done for her Lord. Don't you see, what he's saying to this man, what he's saying to us is God's kingdom is our top priority. Seek you first, young people, seek you first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. Maybe not in this life, but in the life to come. Do you have that eternal perspective? Third thing we learn about discipleship, don't look back. Now, I've just looked back but not in discipleship. Don't look back. Don't look back. I'm looking at the choir. Verses 61 and 62. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So we have a third example. Probably he has in mind, and most would have understood, 1 Kings chapter 19, when Elijah granted Elisha's request to say goodbye to his family before following Elijah. If that is the case, then he is acknowledging Elijah granted Elisha's request, but Jesus is saying to this man, my person is greater than Elijah's. My person is greater my purpose is greater, my program is greater, my urgency is greater, my demands are greater, indeed they are radical. And Jesus makes plain that he is the center around which the universe of this disciple and of all disciples must revolve. Jesus indeed is such a person that your life and mine should revolve around him and not around ourselves. So with that in mind, verse 62 is really a warning. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. He says, follow and don't look back. Can you think in the Old Testament of ways in which we have seen the professing people of God look back? Do you remember after the Exodus, we only come to the 16th chapter before the people of God say, oh, would that we had died under the hand of the Lord in the wilderness. God had brought them out through 
from Egyptian bondage had parted the Red Sea for them, and then they look back and wish that they had not come. Or in the text that was read this morning in our Old Testament lesson, we find Lot's wife against the command of God, looking back, and she was turned into a pillar of salt. So this is a warning. The same warning that we find in the book of Hebrews when it says to us, hold fast your confession. And basically tells us if you go back, your profession of faith was false. Discipleship is not a passing fancy. Discipleship is a way of life from the moment it begins all the way to the grave. Plow a straight furrow. Because you see what happens if you're plowing and you're trying to keep your eye on making that straight furrow, then it's going to be pretty straight. You're thinking ahead to the great harvest that is to come. The seed will be planted. You'll have a wonderful harvest. But if you start to think, you know, I'd rather not do this. I'd rather be on the porch with my glass of lemonade. And you begin to look back. Oh, I'm just going to go and do that. The seed will not be planted. There will be no harvest And if you begin even to think about that, you'll fail to plow a straight furrow. Have you ever seen the copper engraving by Albrecht Durer, Night, Death, and the Devil? There you have Durer's Christian knight on his great steed. He's surrounded by all sorts of spooky figures, including death on a pale horse with an hourglass in his hand and all sorts of demonic figures that want to to pull him away from this straight gaze that this Christian knight has as he's moving on through the road and you can see at the top of the engraving the celestial city. Now that's the picture here. It's a different figure, but it's the same idea. Keep your gaze on Christ. Keep your gaze on the celestial city. Keep moving in the right direction. Plow a straight furrow. Move on to the celestial city. That's the point. And so he uses this word in verse 62, fit. Did you notice it? No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Euthethos, it means suitable. It can even mean usable. You're not usable for the kingdom of God otherwise. Someone has said double-minded discipleship is worthless. Yes, he restores the fallen. When we come to Luke 22, we will see Peter who fell and was restored. Falling, failing along the way is not the same thing as turning back. And you know, nothing is more, I will just confess to you, nothing is more psychologically distressing and disturbing to me as a pastor than to see someone who appears to walk well even to delight in the Lord and to see him sometimes quickly, sometimes gradually turn aside and walk away, belying his confession. And I submit that looking over the shoulder and looking back is the same thing as turning back in Hebrews chapter 6. Someone who tasted of the heavenly gift, but he was never saved and never redeemed. I just wonder if the church in America understood the call to discipleship if it would empty out. Because the task is great, the road is hard, the reward, however, the reward is worth it. 
Because what makes discipleship to which Jesus is calling us worth it? What makes it worth it is it is done for Jesus. And if you don't understand that, then you don't know Jesus. If you knew him, you would understand. You know, sometimes a mere human leader claims from followers utter devotion. How much more? This is not a George Patton. This is, this is Jesus. Jesus. How much more the devotion to which the Lord calls us to daily, let me say this, to daily persevering faith in Christ alone, daily persevering faith, not to the fast or the flashy. The Christian life doesn't work that way. And we should not give that impression by what we teach, how we worship. It's the regular, the steady, the ongoing. So we've learned three things about discipleship. This world is not our home. The kingdom must be our priority, and don't look back. Well, let me give you five final thoughts. I'll say them somewhat quickly. My five thoughts are these. Sounds like Jesus is calling for total commitment, doesn't it? Right. Adolf Munoz said, There is no peace for the man who takes his point of departure from within himself. Christ's spirit actually makes a life of self-deniable desirable. It is all because of the wonder of God's love shown to us in the cross. Yes, he purchased us lock, stock, and barrel by his own shed blood. And so he has the right to say, I call you, all of you, all that you are, I call you to be my disciple. Second, what kind of person is this that would call for such commitment? Only God can claim such loyalty as this, and that's who this is, God who became flesh. All that Christmas is about, God became flesh and dwelt among us. He can do this because he is God. Thirdly, not ready for discipleship? I'm just not ready to be a disciple. I'm not ready to give it all up. I'm not ready to learn how to give it all up and to grow in that and mature in that. Well, if you're not ready for that, you're not ready for life. If you're not ready for that, you're not ready for death. Because the Bible would not call what we call nominal Christians, Christians at all. You cannot live the Christian life unless you are a Christian. That's the bottom line. There are a lot of people who fake it and fake it well for a while. But if you are not a Christian, you cannot live the Christian life. You must be born again. And if you are not born of the Spirit of God, you cannot be his disciple. Discipleship begins there. And when it begins there, it will continue. It will continue on until death or Jesus comes again. If you're not ready to be his disciple, you need to search your heart and ask, do I belong to him? Do I know him? Fourthly, the bottom line on discipleship is growing to learn how to exalt him and not me. Because the temptation of the sinful human heart is always to exalt me rather than him. Robert Haldane, in the biography of Haldane, made this uh, statement. He said, it is the purpose of God to stain the pride of human glory. It is the purpose of God to stain the pride of human glory. And his purpose shall stand. 
The nearer we live to him, the more we are engaged in contemplating his glory, his love, and his grace to us, the more willing shall we be that he alone should be exalted. And as he is infinitely exalted above all created conceptions, so the happiness of the whole obedient and intelligent creation will arise and continue through eternity in beholding his glory. Did we perceive more of his glory, it would hide pride from our eyes. But as when the sun is withdrawn, the stars are bright, so when our minds are turned away from God, we hold ourselves and the persons of our fellow creatures in admiration because of some real or supposed advantage over others. So you see, the purpose of discipleship is to learn to glorify him, not me. It is learning to glory alone in the cross, to boast alone in the cross. And you can begin to do that if you know Jesus, because Jesus Christ rose from the dead, and he has promised that he will help you. But then fifthly, there is no disciple who will be a perfect disciple. Discipleship happens within the context of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But I want you to remember that Jesus did perfectly what we as his disciples do imperfectly. Does he call us to self-denial? He did this to the uttermost. He denied himself all the way to the cross. Does he call us to put him even before family and relationships in our affections? He did this. Does he call us to set our hands to the plow and never look back? Jesus fixed his eyes on Jerusalem for the joy set before him, the joy of, listen, the joy of the agony of saving you from your sin. That was his joy. His joy was obedience to his father. His joy was the agony of obeying his father so that he might save you and me from our sins. So Jesus fixed his eyes on Jerusalem and for the joy set before him, the joy of the agony of saving you, he endured the cross, despised its shame. Therefore, let us, in light of this, set aside every weight that hinders. Let us set aside every weight that hinders. What is it in my life that is, that is hindering my following Jesus as his disciple? What is it in your life that is hindering your faithful following of him now? Get rid of it. Believe and repent and follow. Follow. Follow the Lamb of God that was slain for your sin. Now, may may we not all, in light of this, what do you do with these sermons, by the way? Do Do you hear them and then leave and forget them? I hope not. I'm not saying you'll always remember what David preached last week or the week before, or Jeff or, or Adam. <clears throat> Heard some fellow say, I don't remember what my wife fed me last week, but she's been feeding me for 40 years, and it was very nurturing. So it's the cumulative, right? It's constantly being under the Word of God. Disciples being under the Word. Here you have three opportunities a week for that, usually. All right? So what do you do with these things? Let me say, here's what you should do. Will you get alone 
on your knees before the Lord, and will you say once again, or maybe somebody for the very first time in your life, will you say to the Lord, Lord, you died for me. I'm yours completely and utterly. Use me as you will. Go do that. Not right this minute. We have hymns to sing, but go do that. Spend time alone with the Lord. Get out of your life what's hindering your discipleship and become more and more a faithful follower of the Lamb. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.